Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. Earlier this year, Aspie's International Cyber Policy Centre released an incredible report, Uyghurs for Sale. The report presents the findings of extensive research into forced labour and labour transfer programs the Uyghur population in Xinjiang, China are subjected to. This report, which has quickly become Aspie's most read report, names 83 companies whose supply chains use Uyghur forced labour to manufacture their products or elements of their products in their supply chain. I was able to sit down with report authors and Aspie analysts, Vicky Zhu, Kelsey Munro, and Nathan Russo to discuss the report, their research methods that brought them such a large body of evidence, and the impact the report has had since its release. Thank you for joining me today. I'm here with Kelsey, Nathan, and Vicky. I might throw to you, Vicky, first. Thank you, Kelly. So the report is about how the Chinese government has facilitated the transfer of large numbers of Uyghur people from their hometown, Xinjiang, to other parts of China to work in factories. And um, these Uyghurs, they have been, you know, this, this people has been the target of a um, severe crackdown since 2017, and their culture is being destroyed. And in Xinjiang, as we were speaking, they're Turkic Muslims. Um, since 2017, there has been a million Uyghurs that have been put into detention camps in Xinjiang. Well, this report is about, you know, how they're now being taken out of their, their, their region, uh, and they're working in factories across China that apply very well-known brands, as we have named Apple, Adidas, Nike, uh, a lot of household brands that everyone is familiar with. So where do we get that idea? Uh, well, you know, we see this as sort of another phase or another aspect to the structural destruction uh, of the Uyghur identity, because a lot of people have been released in the past couple of years. And we sort of tried to trace them, you know, where have they gone? And we know that there's forced labor in Xinjiang. You know, people get sent to factories and stuff to work. And I, by accident, came across this article on, on Chinese state media you know, talking about transferring dozens of Uyghur workers to Hubei province. And uh, that was very interesting, you know, in, in the context of 2019. So I looked into that and I found that there are so many more transfers like that. And Kelsey and Nathan, how did you get involved? Yeah, so I've been involved in trying to do some research into the human rights situation in Xinjiang for a while now, specifically looking at satellite imagery and what that can teach us about the situation on the ground in such a closed society for any information to get out. So a lot of my part of a lot of my work on this report went to looking into these factories and trying to see what made them different to normal factories, whether it was being completely enclosed from the outside world or having workers' dormitories that are fenced off and having a look at the facilities that state media was reporting that these trainees came from. In some cases, at least, you could pretty clearly see that that was from what was a re-education camp or was a centre for the arbitrary detention of these minorities. I think one of the unique things about this report and, and some of the other work that we're doing at ASPIE is this sort of very creative use of open source documents like Nathan's work on the satellite imagery and Vicky's work on, it's all sourced from official, a lot of it is sourced from official Chinese government documents or, or state media. And so this, this information is all there, but it has to be put together in a, a kind of considered way to, to make the clear picture 
And one, one of the things I think this report did that made it such an impact was that sort of working from the other end, rather than looking at companies manufacturing in China, we started, Vicky started with do- documents showing Uyghurs being transferred into these sort of quite low level, maybe tier two or tier three factories, and then traced their connections out to the world, to global brands. It gave us sort of a really new dimension to the picture of what's happening in Xinjiang. Something that really struck me, and I think a lot of the readers of the report um, would have felt the same way, is these brands are everyday brands for us. And these brands are manufacturing using this forced labour, and it would be shocking to a lot of people who hadn't considered this before. What's been the response from companies or governments or media um, since the release of the report? There was a big response. We named 83 brands, 83 international brands. There was also many Chinese companies involved. Some of them were very concerned and, and sort of started investigating their supply chains. I think quite a lot of them are. But there was also a lot of defensiveness, a lot of, oh, no, read our policy. We don't use forced labour. We would never do such a thing. But it became clear pretty quickly that most of them can only say that about their first tier factories or the tier one factories, the ones they have direct contractual relationships with. But as the evidence laid out in this report shows, the implications are much further down the supply chain. So if they're, if they're just sort of saying, oh, my tier one factory is fine, I don't have to worry about the factory making parts for that, that factory, um, then they're missing a lot of the picture. The sort of 83 brands that we name, like you mentioned, are household names, but I think they're almost certainly just the tip of the iceberg. And we thought it was important to name companies, I guess, in bulk so that there was some sort of industry-wide reckoning that this is a deeper problem than just a couple of scattered factories and previous responses, which have been sort of dealing with the allegations of this on a case-by-case basis. I think what's important now is that there is, yeah, a sort of recognition from these big companies that do a lot of business and a lot of their manufacturing, especially in China, that this is an issue and that traditional ways of auditing an ethical supply chain don't necessarily work with this issue because you don't have the cooperation of the government or your first-tier suppliers. And in many cases, they work quite actively to cover this up. So generally, I think there needs to be a recognition from companies that they need to take more steps themselves to ensure their their supply chains remain ethical. And what, what are those steps that, that they should take if, if they aren't, you know, a direct T1 supplier? How do companies recognise that they might be using forced labour? It's a good question. I think companies need to be more explicit towards their T1 suppliers about what information they expect from the suppliers of those companies. And at the very least, they should be able to get the name of who supplies those T1 suppliers so that they can do their own auditing of it. But it is tricky because the auditing process in China for ethical auditing is kind of broken down in many cases, especially in Xinjiang. But any company that has a satellite factory in Xinjiang, any company that uses Xinjiang as a labor base for their for their manufacturing should be a big red flag. What, and are there any other red flags that, that we should, you know, as, a, as companies or consumers of products from these companies, what should we be looking for? I mean, I think what Nathan said, there's some practical things that the companies are the ones that have the most leverage here, the companies that manufacture in these places. I mean, one uh, sort of example that Nathan's given before is, is like having a police station with Arabic writing outside your factory is a fairly good sign that there's Turkey minority workers there who may not be 
under fully voluntary um, circumstances. This is really an emerging issue. And I think that a lot of the brands involved, even with the best goodwill and, and a genuine commitment to not using forced labor in their supply chains, might have been caught out by this because we spoke, for example, to the CEO of a big auditing company based in Hong Kong. They do work all over the world, but lots of work in China, have lots of Chinese employees. And they told us that they were actually changing some of their auditing protocols based on the report because they just hadn't been looking for this issue. They hadn't been looking for minority workers who were under sort of um, forced or coerced conditions because a lot of this might be invisible. You know, some of them might be behind high fences, but it might just be the, the surveillance aspect that keeps these people sort of coerced in place. So big auditing companies are sort of thinking through thinking through this issue by starting to collect numbers on on Uyghurs and other minority workers in the factories they're auditing and and trying to do off-site interviews with those workers, for example, to try to get some sort of independent access to them where they're able to speak freely about their conditions. Um, so that's something that I think if you're serious about investigating your supply chain, you really have to think creatively about how to get um, access to these people who might be under a lot of pressure. And what about governmentally? Has there been a response from, you know, the Australian government, the US government, these these companies are a lot of them multinational companies. I would expect that there would be some response from government. There is currently a new legislation following the release of this report on calling for bans from, you know, all products made in Xinjiang. And that is in the U.S. Yeah, in the U.S., sorry. Um, uh, and that's still under review, so we don't know if that's going to pass. And, and also from the U.S., um, Representative um, Ilhan Omar has reached out to us, and she has already written um, letters asking U.S. companies why they're using Uyghur workers in such a way and why they're participating in this coercive on labor transfer, and, and that's uh, all very welcoming. And European governments have or, have also been very proactive. And we have um, spoken with a couple of government or slash industry representatives who wanted to understand more about this issue. Um, and there are possible legislation sort of efforts that will follow, but um, it's a little early to say, especially with the distraction of coronavirus. We haven't really seen a lot in Australia, I, I don't think. The report was commended in Parliament, I guess that's something. But we haven't seen a lot of sort of like, yeah, legislation efforts or anything like that. What would you want to see from like either Australian governments or US government representatives to address the issue? What steps practical steps could governments be considering? One of the recommendations we made in the report was that we think there needs to be a review of the modern slavery laws because those laws were made, you know, what, a hundred years ago, decades ago. I think when those laws were made, we didn't have all the surveillance tools that we have today. So one of the big aspects of um, the, the situation of the Uyghur workers in these factories is that they're constantly surveilled. And, um, you know, they, there are surveillance cameras, AI cameras. They're surveilled by officials at the factory and in some cases, police officers. And their family members back home are also surveilled by local officials. So under this many levels of surveillance, you've got to do whatever people tell you to do. And we think that could be a very significant part, um, indicator of forced labor, but that is not currently written in the laws. Well, it kind of seems in Australia, especially, a lot of the modern slavery legislation doesn't really have much teeth to it. It puts an onus on companies to, as far as my understanding is, it puts an onus on companies to 
report where there could be issues in their supply chain, but it doesn't mandate that they look into it or even talk about the risk. They just need to publicly announce that this is what they are more concerned about. So I think there could be a lot more teethy legislation about, especially considering the need for a lot of this investigative onus to be on the companies now when you can't rely on local partners in China to help you stamp out these policies and these practices. I think any sort of governmental response does need to focus on the fact that this is a thing that the corporations at the corporate level will be having to sort of investigate and fight themselves and how the government can best position them to, one, help with that auditing and help with that information gathering, but also how to, in a way, have teeth to that legislation when companies don't live up to that responsibility. You touched on it earlier. Uh, You spoke a little bit about um, how the research was done for this report, but I'd like to discuss a little bit more about the open source reporting. Um, Are you able to talk me through how the research was undertaken for this report? It, It seems incredible that it's all open source reporting and you can do so much with what's available online at the moment. I think we really sort of took advantage of a of a knowledge and ethics sort of gap between what we understand as normal and good in the West and what is normal and good in, you know, today's China. So once we sort of, we we saw bits and pieces about people being transferred, and my first reaction is, well, that um, sounds to me a lot like coercion, and I want to look into it. And then, you know, the next step, I came to understand by basically a content, like a larger scale content uh, analysis. For example, I would read 10 articles about, you know, these uh, recent labor transfers, and they all talk about one policy initiative um, that's called Xinjiang Aid. So I look into Xinjiang Aid and I found, for example, 500 more. I'm just making these numbers up. I think we probably reviewed more, 500 articles. Um, and then they are, you know, they all happen in different cities and different provinces. And the reason that they're so out in the open is because the state has been promoting this initiative called Xinjiang Aid that transfers people, that moves around the population in the ways uh, so that, you know, Uyghur people are away from their homes. They do this labor in these factories. Um, this is to the state or to state media a good and positive thing, you know. You read these articles. Yeah, they sell it as like poverty alleviation, yeah, right? They, yeah. they they pitch it as as like almost doing these people a favor. They pitch it as poverty alleviation. They pitch it as um, it's a good opportunity for them to go out in the world and learn and uh, transform themselves. You know, there's a there's such a there's an element of studying in in these um, in these transfers, and uh, you know some articles even say things like. This Uyghur girl, when she was back home, she was poor, she was dirty, and now she's transferred to, you know, a coastal city to do labor. She she takes a daily shower, and her long hair, you know, is flowing, which sounds a little bit absurd for a Muslim woman, but um, but that's the sort of thing that st- the state propagates. Um, so when they do this, I, I I don't think they realize how this looks to a I don't know how to put up normal moral standards. You know, you you don't force people to take off their headscarf. So when they're propagating about the program, that's where we sort of were able to gather a lot of the information, take it in, and, you know, also take government um, official documents to sort of, you know, put all the content together and then pick out the bits that we need. 
it's a very labor intensive process. Um, I think on the presentation side, it was important to sort of highlight how one sort of chink in your supply chain can taint the rest of it. So when we looked at the sort of supply chain graphs, it was important to show how this one subcontractor used by so many companies could be the source of a lot of this unethical supply chain. From the research side, a lot of a lot of the imagery was just devoted to trying to find as many of the sites mentioned in these reports as possible, whether it's the factories themselves or the source of a lot of the workers in Xinjiang. And some of the articles mentioned where they come from and where they're going to. Other ones are a lot more broad, just saying... X number of trainees were transferred from X county to Y province in mainland China. But where it mentioned names and mentioned details, it was important to sort of look to see if there were those similar red flags in the satellite imagery, such as fences or walls around the residential buildings within that factories or the telltale signs of a detention camp. Something I did want to touch on was the personal impact perhaps um, you might have seen. I know on Twitter there has been some some trolling. Um, how has the publish- publication of the report impacted you personally? This response from the public this time has been largely positive. We did get well trolled a couple of times by the Chinese foreign ministry and Global Times on this party tabloids, but you know we don't really care. I don't know if that's fair to say. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it's generational, but Vicky and Nathan seem to have a much bigger appetite for Twitter fights than me personally. <laughs> what, um- In a way, you sort of get used to the the weird, the weird anti-imperialist podcast left complaining about a lot, (laughs) and so their their responses are very predictable. And I've I've been looking at Syria for for what six seven years now, and they're a non-stop fixture in that sort of defending mass murderous dictators. So this is pretty light compared to what you see in Syria. So don't go on the internet, people. Oh, gosh. Uh, I've pretty much, like, left Twitter now. Um, I, I feel like there has been an improvement on my life quality. But, yeah, we, we actually didn't get criticized all that much or the criticism just mostly came from the Chinese state media or there was a guy who was married to, like, the daughter of a Chinese general. It's very predictable. <laughs> There wasn't really any substantive criticisms of our report, even from the people complaining about it. I remember um, the Global Times, which is sort of a state-run tabloid, credited our report with extensively citing documents, academic research, and even satellite imagery analysis, which sounds more like praise to yeah, me than anything that, that- else. Then they called it a cock and bull story, but... <laughs> They like even even their criticism sort of acknowledged the the research depth of this report and how robust our sourcing was. I think most of the feedback we've had has been really positive, um, to be honest. I mean, and and lots of lots of engagement from the companies named, and despite some defensiveness, I do get the sense that it has really triggered some at least internal changes in their approach. They're trying to understand the issue. They're trying to make sure that, you know, whether whether they're sincerely concerned for the plight of these people or they just don't want to look bad, that I think there are some they are trying to institute some changes and trying to understand this Chinese supply chains better. We've had a few foreign governments want briefings. There's been really quite a lot of engagement um, around the issues raised in the report and people trying to understand how they can help improve the situation. Even prior to our report, there was a sort of very slow 
understanding and sort of a very slow uptake by some of these companies that there were problems in Xinjiang. And even prior to our report, some companies were sort of directing their suppliers to not do business with companies in Xinjiang. Um, and it, yeah, I think our report has hopefully sort of advanced that conversation along and allowed these, the corporate branches of these companies to get a better understanding of where the risks lay. Yeah. And I think the draft, like the proposed legislation in the US would have helped push that, that internal conversation from companies along further. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that bill in the US basically makes it a presumption that anything made in Xinjiang has been essentially tainted with forced labour because you cannot go into Xinjiang to audit to, to ensure that it hasn't, it just can't because of the realities of the political situation there. So, Which certainly isn't a bold claim. It seems yeah. that's pretty backed up by not just our report, but consistently the evidence of the scale of forced labour in Xinjiang. Yeah, and I, I think what, what really alarmed a lot of people about our report was that maybe they thought if they don't have anything to do with Xinjiang, they're safe in, in terms of ensuring ethical practices in their supply chains. But this really points out that the whole of China potentially can be a bit of a grey area for you if you want to have um, an ethical supply chain. And that's really problematic because most of the world's manufacturing happens in China. So I think a lot of people were alarmed by that. We touched on it a little bit earlier. The impact of the report in China, has has the report been more widely read there? That's almost impossible to sort of measure from what the companies and sort of the auditors are telling us, we think, as Kelsey has said, there's some kind of like a reckoning happening slowly. But from the government side, um, we see them uh, ramping up propaganda about these transfers. You know, uh, I have seen videos from the Global Times, the party tabloid again, uh, you know, having Uyghurs sort of like lined up and um, looking at the camera and there's obviously a piece of paper behind the camera and then they just read, they say, you know, I'm blah, blah, blah. I am have been, you know, I've traveled from where to where and I work at this factory and I'm incredibly happy. I'm paid so well. I'm very happy. It's just so sort of badly designed. It looked like forced confessions. So that's how we know it touched the nerve of the Communist Party. Um, but, you know, how much is going to change and how much they're going to respond to this? I don't I'm pretty pessimistic about that, um, just because, you know, after the report, the report was out in February and, and March, we continue to see state media talking about how they're transporting Uyghurs outside of Xinjiang. And then we see pictures of these Uyghurs in masks. This is during coronavirus. So. And, and in one article I read, they were taking, I think, hundreds of Uyghurs to Hunan province and, in late February, which was, you know, a time when Hunan province was actually hit really hard by coronavirus. So this is probably also a time when, you know, Chinese Han Chinese workers are unwilling to go to work. A lot of the policy drivers behind these practices is very centrally driven and a very top-down policies that are enacted and give... I guess advantages to companies that take that use this sort of coerced labor in China. So none of those will change overnight from the governmental perspective, especially during the time of coronavirus when the central government in China has larger things on its plate to worry about. Um, but I think it really does come down to the response of companies. And if companies en masse make it clear that not only are they not willing to accept business deals within Xinjiang, but also they don't want to accept companies that have a 
significant presence in Xinjiang as a manufacturing base, then that brings a lot of power because a lot of Beijing's sort of plans towards Xinjiang in the future are to make it a new manufacturing base for China, for parts of the sort of mainland, where I guess workers aren't happy with having as few rights as they can be given in Xinjiang. So that strategic shift of a manufacturing base from inner China to Xinjiang is something that I see as an end goal of this policy. And that's something that I think companies and governments in the rest of the world can sort of stop in its tracks quite easily. One, one thing I guess I would say on a vaguely optimistic note is that the Chinese government isn't always as impervious to external pressure as we might think it is. I mean, it, it, it obviously cares a lot about what the world thinks, and particularly if companies with economic leverage start seeing China as just too risky to manufacture in um, I can imagine some sort of calibrating of policy over time, but not where it intersects with like core national security interests or domestic security interests. So I don't know. I mean, I think I think external pressure can really make a difference, at least around the edges anyway. We hope so. Uh, Vicky, Kelsey and Nathan, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks a lot, Kelly. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Policy, Guns and Money. If you haven't read the report yet, you can find the link below. We will see you in a week.